This is On the Margins, a podcast about educational equity in North Carolina. We bring the often untold stories of education in the state from margin to center. You know, there's an underlying assumption when we talk about racial equity that we just mean non-Asian students of color. And if we keep it real, I've been guilty of this myself in the past. After all, if we look at the data uncritically, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders as a subgroup tend to outperform their counterparts of color. So as such, when we talk about opportunity gaps or low-performing students, the unspoken conclusion is that Asian students on average are doing just fine. But is that really the case? Or are we missing crucial information that could be exacerbating hidden inequities? For this episode of On the Margins, I had the privilege of talking with Dr. Lan Kalanu, a professor and teacher educator at UNC Charlotte, and Kat Baolet, the executive director of the Southeast Asian Coalition, or SEAC Village. Both of these women are of Vietnamese descent and are doing powerful work in the academy and the community. They provide much needed insight about the flaws of the AAPI category, the assets of the immigrant experience, and the need for greater solidarity across communities of color in the fight for educational equity. I'm grateful to them for sharing their stories and hope that you learn as much from them as I have. We start off with Dr. Kalando. Uh, I am a professor of education at UNC Charlotte, um, Cato College of Education. I've been here 16 years. I'm currently serving as the interim department chair for middle, secondary, and K-12 education. I started my work in education after I spent several years as a public school teacher. And I, believe it or not, I was a biology major and English major in, in college, and I was going to med school. That was my path until I realized my senior year that that was really not going to happen for me. So I, um, I went to Vietnam, a place that my family fled in uh, 1978. And I met my grandmother because we were so young when I left. I left when I was three. Um, <clears throat> and I spent some time with my family in, in Vietnam. And I, I saw my cousin, who made a huge impact on my life goals. I saw the poverty they lived in. I saw the missed opportunities. Um, and the, her story could have very well been mine had my family not left in 1978. <clears throat> so I came back from my trip um, to Vietnam. And I decided I was going to be a teacher. Because in reflecting on my life, I realized that education was my way out. Um, my family stressed the value of education. They, they, we were immigrants here, but they knew they had to get us into a good school district. Um, I remember the very first house that we moved into. Um, I was seven years old. My family had been here only a few years, um, but they had saved enough money to buy um, 
almost just a shell of a house, but it was in a good school district. So um, we didn't have any furniture. We slept on the floor. We had one lamp. We had um, a hot pot. And But because of that move, I was able to attend a school um, where students were valued. And unfortunately, I... Um, I I interacted with teachers and other students who didn't really understand why we were there. You know, it was predominantly white school. So um, while I had wonderful teachers, I had uh, one teacher that really made an impact on um, on my life. It was the first time that I realized what racism was. And it was my fourth grade teacher, and she basically made it her life's work to ensure that I was did not feel a sense of belonging there. Um, <clears throat> and I, I think about her, and I've actually written about her, um, because she really did make me think about what it means to be a teacher and the, the power that teachers have on kids. Um, so circling back to my, my own experiences as a public school teacher, I wanted to give back and, um, I wanted to participate in creating classrooms for students where they felt included, that they felt, where they felt they belonged. Um, so I taught school for a few years and I realized that, um, while I m loved the kids, that there was a need for me to help in the, in, the, in the realm of teacher education, that so many teachers with so much power um, needed some education. And so I went to grad school. I finished my PhD at Chapel Hill in 2004. Um, I finished a program called Culture, Curriculum, and Change. It was really focused on uh, social change and racial equity, and um, and then I came to UNC Charlotte shortly thereafter, and my work is focused around the education of immigrant communities and um, preparing the teaching force to become teacher allies. Teacher allies, I love it, <laughs> and that's beautiful. Um, and if you don't mind. Um, before we move on and um, allow you, Kat, to tell your story, would you mind sharing kind of brief anecdote of the experience that you had with that teacher? Something that's indelible, still resonates? So this story, um, like I said, I've written about it. And um, in my classes with uh, teacher education candidates, I share it. Um, it's in almost every narrative that informs my teaching philosophy, so I'm, I'm happy to share. Basically, um, in fourth grade, um, I had, by that time, I had learned English pretty well. I came, um, like I said, we left Vietnam when I was three. Um, when we got to the United States after a year of refugee camp um, in Malaysia, I was four. I started kindergarten. I, I learned English pretty quickly because everyone was learning their ABCs, right? So by fourth grade, I was pretty good. You know, I had reached a, a native-like um, proficiency. And, um, and so I was feeling pretty good. I was making good grades. My teachers loved me um, because I worked hard. Um, 
But the first day of, of uh, fourth grade, she looked at me and she put me in the back of the room. She told me I smelled like soy sauce. Oh, my God. Um, and that she knew I wasn't going to make it um, in her class, no matter how sh- hard she tried. How old were you again? I was um, nine. So it was pretty explicit the first time in my life um, where I had experienced explicit racism. But the story that I tell is related to our a Virginia scrapbook that was required for all fourth graders in their last quarter. So um, when you are in fourth grade, you have to compose a Virginia scrapbook. And this, the content of the scrapbook includes facts about agriculture, about the state tree, um, you know, different facts about Virginia. Everyone had to put together this scrapbook, and it was going to um, make up the whole grade um, for the last quarter. So whether or not you did well determined your grade mm-hmm. for, for that last mm-hmm. quarter. So as she was going over the um, assignment, <clears throat> I was really struck by um, one particular part of the assignment. What is a scrapbook? Right. I didn't know what a scrapbook was. Right. She kept talking about scrapbook, and I, I had no, I had nothing to connect to mm-hmm. the scrapbook. And then more importantly, I wondered, where do you get it? And most importantly, how much does it cost? Because right. my family, we had just come from Vietnam. We were refugees. Right. Um, we fled war to be here. We didn't have a lot of money, and we definitely didn't have a lot of resources. So um, I asked my friend, you know, what is a scrapbook? Where do you get the scrapbook? Um, and how much does it cost? And, and she said, my very good friend, she said, oh, you know, it's, you get it at this place called Ben Franklin, and, you know, it's a craft store. And I'm like, craft store? <laughs> talking about craft store. Scrapbooks to craft store. There's a like... store that you can buy crafts? Like, I don't even know what you're saying. So um, her mom took me to Ben Franklin when they were going to buy their scrapbook. And I was, this is why I have an addiction to office supplies to this day. (laughs) I was mesmerized by what I saw in this Ben Franklin store. There were colors and paints and markers and everything that you could possibly imagine that I had never experienced in my life. And then she took me to the aisle where there were scrapbooks. Well, their scrapbooks were $20. Right. Right. So I go home and I... um, I break it to my parents, listen, there's this project that I have to do, and it, it's going to cost $20, and it's due whenever, whenever it was. And I was very upset because I knew that we couldn't afford it. <clears throat> and my mom, who was a shampoo girl um, at the time, now she own, owns her own business, right. um, but she started off as a shampoo girl. She would get 25 cents as a tip for every head that she washed. So she started a jar and she put Lon's scrapbook on the jar. And every day she would come home and she would put her tip money in the jar until we had enough money to buy the scrapbook. So fast forward to um, my determination in impressing this teacher. So while she's raising the money for the scrapbook, I'm working really hard to uh, put the content together, right? 
I hand draw the dogwood tree, the cardinal. I mean, it's pretty good too. <laughs> and I, I had to get the scraps from the art teacher. She said that I could have whatever was in the trash. So I took construction paper that people throw, my classmates would throw away. Um, and she would help me gather materials because we didn't have any materials for the scrapbook. And so, um, she was wonderful. My librarian was also wonderful. She would let me stay in the library and do the research that I needed because my family didn't own our own world book encyclopedias. Um, so I was focused on the content and my mom was focused on getting the scrapbook and together we were going to make this happen and we were going to prove this teacher wrong. Right. So the time came to put the scrapbook together and we sit down on the weekend and I have everything, just I have the most perfect handwriting and the most beautiful pictures and the most cut borders. Mm -hmm. Everything was just perfect, pristine, yeah. pristine, pristine content that was going to go in the car scrapbook. Um, I sat down and I realized that I did not have any glue. So therefore, I couldn't attach these pages to the scrapbook. I had the scrapbook. I had the content for the scrapbook. But I forgot to calculate the costs for glue. Mm. And so I sat there defeated in that moment at nine years old, thinking that this teacher had won because I, there was no way I was going to be able to, to put the materials in the scrapbook. So my mom, who is my hero, mm -hmm. looks at me. I'm crying, and she goes into the kitchen. And I'm like, Woman, what, she did. what is she doing going to the kitchen? <laughs> and she's cooking. And I'm looking at her like, my life is ending right now. And you're I'm, cooking. And I'm in tears, and you're cooking. So 20 minutes later, she comes back to me, and she sets down a bowl of rice. Oh, wow. And she... <laughs> made little balls of rice and she slapped it on the back of those pages and we put together that mm. scrapbook mm. and she was my hero mm. that day because I created the scrapbook using our cultural knowledge yeah our funds of knowledge that's right and we were able to complete this assignment mm -hmm. um so when I think about that story, it really does shape my teaching philosophy. It shapes how, how what I think about teachers. Um, mm -hmm. It shapes how the power of knowledge that students from immigrant communities have. Um, and the role of the teacher is to tap into that knowledge, that right. existing knowledge, so that as teachers and learners we can co-construct knowledge in schools. What cat, man. I'm sorry. I, I hate wow. to make you follow that up. I know. <laughs> but that, that is was... a tremendous mm. story. Goodness. Yeah, I would tell that every opportunity I got as well. Mm -hmm. Thanks for listening. No, that's no, great. I, thank you for sharing. That was so beautiful. I'm all in my feelings. <laughs> I felt, oh, God. So what happened? <laughs> <With the team? laughs> so so what happened next? Uh, unfortunately, 
um, presentation day came. Oh, Lord. And we got, and I got that scrapbook on the bus, and I was proud. I was one proud child. And um, when it was my turn to present, some of the pages fell Mm -hmm. because the, I mean, rice is not, while it it met the need at the time, once it dried, if it wasn't adhered Mm -hmm. fully, some of the pages fell. And this teacher uh, basically said to me, um, you didn't even try. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not understanding what it took Mm -hmm. for me to put that scrapbook together. Mm what it took for my mom to save that money to buy the scrapbook, what it took for, um, for the, the teachers who supported me mm-hmm. to provide me materials, to provide me with the uh, resources that I need yeah. to, um, to write about Virginia. And just within five minutes, she shut me down. Mm-hmm. And so I am thankful to her. Because I know what teachers should not do. And I try to, in my own teaching of teacher education candidates, remind students the power that they have as a teacher. And when I tell that story, I hope they leave with an understanding of what you don't know about a student or the assumptions that you make about children. who come from these communities can be detrimental. Right. And without the support of great teachers, and I had great teachers, she was the exception. I had great teachers in my life, which is what has allowed me to achieve all that I have today. Well, she doesn't know perhaps that she's being used as a way of empowering other folks. Mm -hmm. Right. There's no no learning too, right? Learning what not to do. Right. Uh, as an incredibly strong teacher. And so um, for that, we're grateful, even if you had to endure that that trauma. Um, thank you for paying it forward yes. to other future teachers. Talk to us about your experience, Kat, and what brings you to this work. Um, I just want to say thank you, Lan, for sharing that story. I've known Lan for uh, Dr. Kalano for um, a long time since coming to Charlotte. And um, that makes a lot of sense. And I think in terms of my story, um, it's rooted in the same thing that Dr. Kalano talked about. Um, you know, it's our life experiences that bring us to the work. It's sort of our own healing journey that make us think about our philosophies in the work. Um, and it's the same for me. I grew up from a refugee background. Um, my family was actually resettled in London in 78. Instead of being resettled in the U.S., they were in a refugee camp. And uh, my parents and my older sister weren't trying to wait to make it to California, where the rest of my family had been resettled. So we were in London in, uh, for 13 years, where my parents um, gave my mom gave birth to four other siblings, myself included. And we kind of grew up really um, in Tottenham, which was a, a great place, very community oriented. People took care of us. There weren't a lot of Vietnamese folks there. There weren't a lot of refugees. So we really depended on each other. And we were immigrants and refugees and Irish folk from all over that were put into this, this estate, um, which was called the Broadwater Farm Estates. So that's how I grew up. And then coming to America when I was 10 um, and being um, in a community where there are so many Southeast Asians in Sacramento, California, it really um, 
it, it gave me a sense of pride to be in classrooms with other people from Vietnam. And it really started perk like, I started asking a lot of questions to my dad because I had a Hmong best friend. Um, there are Lao folks in the schools and people would just, I would ask my friends like, what, how come you're here? You know? And they would be like, Oh, you know, we're refugees or I see them at church. We grew up Catholic and they'd be like, what, why are y'all here? You know, it's <laughs> mainly Vit folk and Filipino folks. That I know they're in the API category um, that were Catholic. So I, I just started being very curious from a young age. And I think when I came to Sacramento, California in the 90s, um, there was a lot going on. There was a lot going on in terms of our neighborhoods. There was a lot going on in terms of what I now know uh, is the school to prison pipeline mm -hmm. for us, the school to prison to deportation pipeline. That's right. There were gang databases where police would just kind of pick us up if we were ditching school or whatever and put us in these gang databases, which then, you know, increased the severity if you got caught up with a, a small crime or whatever. Um, and I think realizing that, but also being very determined to get out of my situation in Sacramento and really make it to college, um, was kind of the combination that brought me to higher education. In high school, I was super focused. Um, I was very insular into um, my group of friends. We, we had a very diverse um, sort of upbringing, but I was just always kind of like Vit Pride. I'm, I'm a Vit girl, I'm Vit Pride. And um, so I was one of the few in my group of friends that went to college and I left and I went to the Bay Area. And I knew that Berkeley was going to be over 40% Asian, but it wasn't until I got there that I realized that there were very few people from SAC, very few Southeast Asians, very few people with my life experience. Mm -hmm. And be, even being on my dorm floor that first year, I think I had many rude awakenings right. about, you know, uh, I didn't think of myself as poor. I knew we were low income. We got you know, free lunches every year. We couldn't afford a lot. I had full financial aid. Um, but I just, I had a very rude awakening about um, being at a, a very prestigious institution where people might look like me, but I felt so alone. Mm -hmm. I felt very alone. Um, and I think it was experiences like that that really made me kind of have a larger context of my life, of um, where I grew up in and where I was heading. Um, and if it wasn't for ethnic studies at Berkeley, I think, you know, I wouldn't have finished school. You know, mm. I took so many breaks. It's like, I can't deal with this. I, I wow. need to go. And it's it was very isolating. And I think about that nowadays when youth in our youth program get into universities, um, how isolating that can be and how we prepare them in advance for some of the emotional and mental challenges that you go through. So I think all of these things um, really kind of led me to um, want to do community work. And I started doing kind of Asian American civil rights work in the Bay. Um, I've always been into the youth work. So I've mentored Oakland youth all throughout college through my work study program, um, some of which I'm still in contact with. Um, and I took kind of um, a long journey to get to Charlotte. Um, but when I got here, I think I realized very quickly. I remember I, I got here for a short-term project as I was transitioning to law school. And, you know, I was a returning student. I was 30 at that time. And um, I 
I came to Charlotte for a short-term project to try, try to make some money before going to law school. My family, you know, never had much. And I've always kind of tried to manage on my own, but stay true to what I want to do. Um, so when I got here, I didn't realize anything about the South. They didn't know anything. But I remember um, driving up and down Central Avenue with um, a car that my friend's father let me borrow. It was an F-150 and st <laughs> stopping, <laughs> stopping behind these yellow buses on Central Avenue and just watching all these immigrant and refugee and black and brown youth get off of the bus. And that happened for the first two months of being here. And I just started looking around and thinking about what sorts of organizations are out here for youth. Um, what sorts of alternative spaces are here, is here in Charlotte for our youth. Um, and one thing led to another and, you know, SIAC uh, was founded. I direct the organization now. I also What's the acronym for? SIAC is the Southeast Asian Coalition. We're also known as the SIAC Village because we are multiracial, predominantly Southeast Asian and black. Um, so that kind of started the journey, but I think it was also realizing all the things that I wish I had growing up. Mm -hmm. um, it was realizing that um, a lot of our communities don't have to wait to higher education to be able to understand what laws and policies have affected their lives, the racialization that has happened throughout U.S. history, mm -hmm. like all of these things that empowered me when I was in ethnic studies. We can actually start in high school, even before. So I, I think that was uh, using my own experiences and locating the gaps and also realizing how I became empowered in my own history and um, in that own my own Southeast Asian identity, which for me is a political identity also, yeah. Yeah. became sort of uh, the groundwork for then, let's try something in Charlotte. I know there ain't going to be no funding for a while. <laughs> I know it's going to be hard. It's the South. People don't even want to think about what a Southeast Asian person is. Um, I would go to events and mm -hmm. I think really quickly I understood that it's very different from California in the Bay, but there was something here that was um, calling me mm -hmm. um, to do more. And I think just coming up and down central all the time in my borrowed vehicle and then realizing that no, like this is actually a calling. There are probably um, many reasons why I ended up here in Charlotte where mm -hmm. You know, I've never been to the South in that sense, um, never thought about living in the South. Right. Um, I'd studied so much about the South through ethnic studies. I mean, it's the foundation and so many of the black movements and the black history that, sure. you know, my community now is is um, benefiting from. And also my own lens is, you know, rooted here in the South. And it just made me feel like I'm in the right place. And if I don't put all my energy and all my time into building something that will be um, better mm -hmm. than, you know, then I'm not staying true. I'm just following what often higher higher education institutions want you to do, which for me is sometimes a very deep brainwashing of who we are as mm. people, as, you know, with with complex but beautiful histories, with, like Lan said, uh, cultural knowledge. We, we scrappy, you know, yeah. we will make things work, you know, that's part of the refugee mentality. And I felt like that wasn't really, really elevated in an institution, um, a higher education institution, but in real life, that's what you need. Right. So that's sort of the journey that um, I took and part, a little bit of my family history that led to that. Excellent. Excellent. Boy, listen, we could just fill up a podcast episode <laughs> with that. Right there. We didn't even got to get to the other questions. I mean, geez. 
Um, but no, you're right. Um, you know, the texture that comes from the experiences um, and hearing you talk about, particularly when you said, if it wasn't for ethnic studies, I don't know if I would have made it. And you think about the fact that literally the notion of ethnic studies is controversial and mm. still some parts of the United States and in the K-12 space, mm. right? The idea that, you know, I, think, I think a couple of years back to Arizona, right? Mm-hmm. Arizona attempted to ban ethnic studies under the guise that uh, to teach students something that doesn't center European history, knowledge, and whiteness writ large is to be anti-white. Right. 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 But what I'm hearing, right, from your experience and what I know from my experience is that when you don't see yourself reflected in the curriculum, furthermore, when you don't see yourself reflected in your in your social network, it can lead to a level of isolation that is damaging to prevent you from being your best self, to, from performing academically. So um, I wanted to kind of begin um, by asking y'all a question, but I want to preface it with a story um, that really happened to me. So y'all saw the report that Creed put out uh, and we, you know, of course, erasing inequities looks at all the racial and ethnic groups as best as possible, right? Couldn't provide some nuance. We'll talk more about that for uh, Asian American students. But I have to tell you that when I presented that data before it got validated, we did like uh, an event. And, uh, you know, some individual, I won't name him, um, influential guy, looked at all the, the data and then came up to me and said, why do you think the Asian students are performing so much better than the other students of color? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I said, well, I, I the, the data don't tell us that, right? There are lots of factors to consider, right? Asian is a hugely expansive category, right? It could be disaggregated much further, so that's something to uh, consider. Uh, I was like, there are a bunch of other factors, and there's literature that's been, you know, it's question. He's like, he said, uh, well, I think that you're wrong. I think you're dead. I think that Asians, I've been to Asia, is what mm-hmm. he said. I, I've been to Asia. Mm. And they respect their families. They respect education. Here we go. Um, and I just think it's a cultural thing. And, it, you know, the blacks and Latinos, they don't have that. And I'm, I'm like, okay, so have you been to all of Asia? Right? He told me I've been to Singapore and I've been to Japan. I guess that was enough to characterize all of Asia, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I thought to myself, and I said, you know, there are a lot of individuals who look at that data. And that's the conclusion they're going to come away right. with, mm-hmm. right? That if Asian folk can do it, right, the model minority trope. And there are plenty of movements in education with folks who are bucking that, right? The hashtag not your model minority, hashtag education are hashtags that I follow on Twitter who are really pressing up against that. But can we talk about the ways that that gets used uh, a little bit? Absolutely. Um, You know, I think before answering that, if we just acknowledge that... um, We live in a society in America where the notion of having to compete with each other and elbow each other out of the way uh, falls within um, the every system, but it is intentional. It's how this country was built. And I think that what I've experienced being Asian and being Southeast Asian has been that we're often used uh, as a to divide communities of color. So kind of what you said, you know, Asian Americans are doing it. How come you can't do it? How come, you know, black uh, communities can't do it? And I don't think that there's, I think that's a stereotype. Um, I think that 
we have to be careful. You know, let's bring it local. In Charlotte, there are refugee resettlement organizations, refugee um, organizations that have been around a lot longer than SIAC that aren't Southeast Asian run, aren't run by refugees or people from the community. And I remember in 2014, the, um, on WFAE um, and also on a number of uh, panels I was in, included on as the only Southeast Asian ED um, there was this notion of, you know, there's so many unaccompanied children coming from Central America, our border. And what is it if we fund um, those folks, if we fund a legal process for them? And the talking points were, you know, refugees, which are predominantly Southeast Asian from Burma and Bhutan at this time. Um, you know, they come with documents, you know, they come through a vetting process. They've been standing in line. And what is it when these unaccompanied minors cut in line? There ain't no dang line. Like, let's be real. There is no line, y'all. So right, right. for non-Southeast Asian or non-refugee folks to be saying those sorts of things, but also being seen as leaders in the community, because as a refugee, you're basically feeling like these people are helping me in a country and they're helping me survive. Mm -hmm. So what is it, you know, I could spend all day talking about what's wrong with that and kind of, you know, trying to teach, you know, these white well-meaning people that that's actually not what we believe at SIAC and that's not our value. But then I wouldn't be working on my own community and my own community's liberation from this. So what does it mean when we as Southeast Asian Americans are also embodying some of that white supremacy, are embodying these notions of having to compete with folks? There is enough for everyone. Right. You know, these children come from even though they might not have papers or whatever, it's because there's no legal process for them. It's not because they've struggled any differently than you know, our communities that came from war-torn countries, from genocide, from violence. So when I see those sorts of um, narratives in our community in Charlotte and North Carolina, I've, you know, had to push back because I think that creates also, it's connected to what you just shared, this idea of the Asian immigrant, you know, or refugee, you know, is more able to acculturate, whatever that means, which means, what does that really right. mean? Right. What values are we talking about acculturating to? Right. Who are we centering in that? Who idea? are we centering in it? So, you know, I, I think that our communities have to be very careful and also really think about what it means to be Asian American with those sorts of stereotypes in, in the U.S. and sort of also start to grow our own knowledge about this created category which is asian american yeah which is very very different that. yeah you know i i mentioned earlier that you know i didn't connect with a lot of the asian american students at at my college who were more affluent who you know came up from um you know came to 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 freshman year having had tutors their whole lives you know came with laptops and we're not in this the computer lab like the rest of us you yeah, know like yeah. low income we're not lining up for emergency loans from the financial aid building you know and mm -hmm. and I felt such a disconnect because my life experience although I appear Asian was very different than their life experience there was a reason why I felt more connection with other students who were not of my ethnicity black and brown right, students right. because we were in the same neighborhoods. We yeah. also made it here. We also felt isolated on this, you know, floor in our dorm building. And there's um, 
you know, a distinction that gets lost when we aggregate into the Asian category. For Southeast Asians, a lot of our life experiences, uh, the trauma that our families have gone through, the socioeconomic backgrounds that that uh, we we come from being resettled in in yeah. in the U.S., you know the the things that we face in our families with people being incarcerated in the '90s are the Asian American population um, of incarcerated people grew over two hundred percent. You know, yeah, you and that was that, you right? don't hear about yeah, that. These yeah. are things yeah. that we have in our family. So when we're not also aggregating the data, we're basically just concealing the differences, the distinctions, the inequities that yes, exist. Yes. And um, I think the result is, you know, people who think they know, yeah. um, then saying things to you, right? right? Um, Weaponizing that, that for anti-Black purposes. Right. right? And you that know. could very easily be like, you know, James might feel like, hey, you know what? Why is it, right? Yeah. If yeah. you weren't thinking about it on a deeper level, and maybe if you didn't have the life experience you had, so I think it's just so loaded, but I do see something in terms of a, a narrative in the South and especially with the tradition of, of a lot of um, religious groups helping refugees, a lot of white saviors to be just really real about yeah. it. And the narratives that come out of those spaces are very damaging and are not even from us. So I thought about that as well. And um, Dr. Klein, I know you could probably speak to this a little bit more, but you've been so specific in, in stating Southeast Asia, right? Because, the, you know, not only are there very differences, there are class distinctions, right? Just like any other demographic group, right? Regional distinctions, as you mentioned, the South versus out West. Uh, but, you know, like the experience when we disaggregate those data, right? And you start looking at Vietnamese students, you start looking at Cambodian students, Hmong students. Then what you start seeing is that, you know, there are radically similar even educational outcomes to what we see for Black and Latinx kids. Right. And so there's a story there that's being papered over because we're, you know, taking this huge category, right? And we're, you know, averages, you know what I mean? Right. So talk to us about that. And like you mentioned, these are actual kids and their experiences that are kind of getting lost in, in, the, in the sauce a little bit. Yeah. So let me give you a statistic for on sure. a federal level. Um 54% of Asian Americans overall have a bachelor's degree or higher in the U.S., mm -hmm. right? That's the overall Asian American population. If you break it down and you disaggregate the data, only 14% of Laotian folks mm -hmm. actually have a bachelor's degree or higher. Only 17% of Hmong and Cambodian folks. Only 27% of Vietnamese Americans. Mm -hmm. So if we're not disaggregating the data, we're, we're taking this 54% as if it's you all know, good. Oh, it's yeah. all good. And let's bring it locally, right? Yeah. So, you know, looking up EOC scores for um, different schools in CMS. Right. And Audrey Kell, uh, last year, 90% uh, of the Asian American students um, tested at level three to five, which is the proficient for their grade level, right? right? Those are mostly East Asian students. When you look at Geringer High School, which is My in our neighborhood, yeah. right, yeah. which is a feeder school for SEAC, um, it's... Uh, around 20% uh, of Asian Americans actually tested as proficient for their grade level. And in, for certain subjects, it's even lower. And if you look at the other ethnicities, like mm -hmm. that's right in line with the black students. It's actually lower than the Latinx students. Right. 
So we're not, and those are mostly students that are refugees from Southeast Asia. Different right? experience, yes. Different experience. So even here in Charlotte, we're failing to look at the differences and what that creates is an invisibility. What it creates is, you know, sort of like this notion that Asian Americans or Southeast Asians folks don't need after school programs, don't need, you know, um, after school um, um, activities that that mm. help them talk about their traumas in their lives and and what they're dealing with that impacts academics. Absolutely. Um, so we see this on a, a national level, but mm -hmm. here in Charlotte, right here in our home city, we see that also. We just need to look up the numbers. So there's an education that has to take place, right? Um, and, and listen, who knows whether it's deliberate or whether or not, it almost doesn't matter, does it? Right. Cause it's about impact, right. right? Mm -hmm. And it's about what happens, whether folks are well-meaning or not. Um, but at, you know, at the end of the day, writ large in the country and certainly in North Carolina, uh, Asian American as well as Latinx are the fastest growing non-white demographic. Yeah. Right. And so for education system, uh, Dr. Kalana, what are some of the things that, educators need to take into consideration when trying to adopt more culturally responsive practices, because this really is about educational opportunity at the end of the day, isn't it? Um, I think most importantly, all educators need to first understand the ways that power and racism, power and privilege and have impacted their own lives and how racism is institutionalized through policies and practices. Mm -hmm. When we look at uh, data from education, we see that unless it's disaggregated, it tells a very superficial narrative. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I would in the first thing I would like to share is what we teach in the College of Education is we want our teacher candidates to recognize their own privilege, mm -hmm. number one, right. right? We have to recognize our own lived experiences and we have to acknowledge the privileges that we have uh, before we are able to truly see the students in our classrooms. And when you acknowledge your own privilege and you acknowledge um, how institutional racism has informed policies and practices in schools, then we're able to look at how we can support these Southeast Asian students um, in our classrooms. You have to understand their lives, just like the story that I shared earlier. Unless you ask questions, unless teachers find ways to truly get to know their students in ways that um, move beyond the superficial. You can ask teachers right now, and there are some teachers who don't know what countries these kids are from. <laughs> right. They don't know what languages they speak. They don't know um, what specific histories um, mm. have impacted why they're here. And I think that until we first acknowledge our own biases within ourselves and then acknowledge that students of all communities have gifts that they can share and that learning can be co-constructed, right? right? We can use their histories and their life experiences to, to do great teaching, right? Mm -hmm. And we can educate mainstream peers about the realities of our 
different experiences and how how we can all learn together. Um, it's critically important in order to be a, a teacher ally um, to recognize um, the ways in which we can empower these students using their narratives. And that means learning about them, yeah, right? Yeah. If they're Asian American, learning about whether they're East Asian or right. Southeast Asian. Learning about, okay, so if they are Southeast Asian, what part of Southeast Asia? Yeah. Because the Laotians and the Vietnamese and the Thai have different experiences mm -hmm. and histories. Um, in histories and languages and mm -hmm. cultures. Yeah. And so um, I would place that at the fore. So... You know from being in uh, in uh, teacher prep, though, that the way, and we won't characterize a particular institution, but the way that uh, these courses are set up is you don't get exposed to a lot of the humanities in that regard. You know, I feel like what assisted me is much like yourself. You know, it was a discursive sort of route. I was a mass comm major in undergrad. I went to school to be a, a journalist, right? Uh, I guess it's kind of why I'm here. Um, <laughs> um, but my orientation has always been one that's been about inquiry. Um, but then I was a sociology minor. So I had all this sort of anthropological, historical, political understandings of people, of social stratification, of certain theories. And so I went to the classroom with a disruptive mentality, I was already engaged like in activism. So for me, this is like just the front line of change. I looked at the kids, but listen, once we close the door, this is what's going on, right? And this is how we're going to break the system, you know? And that was kind of like my approach to learning. But I think about my colleagues and um, they didn't know, you know, these things. Not that I knew everything, right? But man, how could they know when it hasn't been required of them to learn these things? So the average teacher might be listening and saying, that sounds good, but that's a lot of learning, right? I got to learn about all these different folks. And frankly, I got I to gotta learn about American foreign policy, right? That, you know, some folks are involuntary immigrants or that my country may have been involved in the toppling of some of these governments or have been meddling in the affairs of other, you know, so these are things that may even disrupt the American exceptionalism yeah. narrative, right? So how do you get access to that sort of education? <laughs> That's not really, you know, if it's not required of you, what would you, what would you recommend? I think that um, what our college does well in teacher education preparation um, or teacher preparation is that there is a true effort to integrate and embed and to provide the experiences to our candidates um, real experiences mm -hmm. through our clinical projects in schools, in urban schools, in um, schools that are highly diverse in multiple ways, not just racially, but linguistically. Um, and I think that our faculty, I've been here 16 years, and I have seen the transformation that has happened within our faculty hires, that everyone who is hired in our Cato College of Education has a real authentic passion for social justice mm -hmm. and for equity. So I think that overall, it has to happen a little bit in, in every class that you take. Mm -hmm. and, um, and for our community, it has to come from everyone and everywhere. And the first 
step in that is opening our hearts and mm. opening our minds and and recognizing that there are counter narratives yeah. that have to be um, told and listened to. Kat, you were talking about it's never too early to start learning these things that you shouldn't have to pay tuition to go to higher ed to start right. <laughs> learning mm-hmm. this stuff. So um, what are common ways that folks, even in community, can begin engaging in these uh, discussions, begin enlightening themselves? For community members or just educators? So I would say educators specifically, but community members writ large, right? Because at the end of the day, this is all of our work. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think about the layout of Charlotte a lot and how segregated the communities are, mm-hmm. how every week, uh, multiple times, SEAC is on the west side, is in the east side, um, dropping off, picking up youth, responding to crises. And I think that one of the things I always try to push people, even in my own family, to do is actually um, not just stay in your own neighborhoods, um, to really kind of learn if you hear that the west side is is terrible, go out there because there's actually a lot going on. Go on it. On a summer evening around 5 or 6 p.m. where everybody's outside and it feels like community because it's different. But yeah. that it, what you see on local news is not all of it. Uh, um, I think it's key to also show up in spaces. You know, at SEAC, we do a lot of direct action protests. We do a lot of community education events. Now we're focusing on a lot of our um, anti-deportation work to actually yeah. do movies and community education and teachings for non-Southeast Asian folks. So instead of emailing us and saying, hey, can I have a moment, an hour of your time to sit down and talk? Sometimes we just, we can't, we're focused on actually building within the community, but come to those events, you know, donate to to so many of the causes that we put forward, learn. Um, And, you know, I think it does take an open heart and open mind. One of the things that we talk about at SEAC for the squad constantly and for the youth is the process of unlearning. Uh, and I think that's so important that people uh, play with that idea, um, also make themselves uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, the process of decolonizing is something we always talk about. Mm-hmm. That's something that we, as people of color, also do and center at Seattle. No matter where you're from, no pretty much, matter right? where. We so, so, what about? other folks in society, you know, um, and there's so many opportunities to do that. There's so many books that are online now. There's so much access to information, to to um, understanding your history, to understanding why things are the way they are in the U.S. I think you have to look at the movements, you know. There's so many movements going on in the U.S., but also locally against ICE, against yeah. the police, and the killing of um, so many uh, uh, black men. Um, the jail deaths that have happened uh, mysteriously in our county prison. You have to tap into those and also make yourself uncomfortable. Go to a protest where there aren't police that are escorts. You know, mm-hmm. go to go to the events that you see where it's just a bunch of us grassroots organizers yeah. talking and wanting to change something for the better. That's really the opportunities that exist. And like I said, it does take getting uncomfortable, but I think that's part of the unlearning process. If it's comfortable, you're not stretching. You're not stretching yourself. Um, I recall going to a protest what, two years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was really, I mean, not that ISIS tamp things down, but really ratcheting up, right? Sort of the shock and awe, you know, um, scare tactics. Um, and it really impacted the communities of kids. And I went to this protest. 
And I've been out the classroom for a couple of years already. And I see a former student there, mm-hmm. right, who's pursuing her higher education uh, at Wingate University, one of the few universities that really, you know, is accommodating right, right. to undocumented folk. Right. Um, and she's almost graduating. And here she is worried now at this point, doing what she needs to do. And I don't want to build a narrative around deserving and non-deserving immigrants, right? Because right. I feel like that's problematic as well. But I couldn't help but think to myself, like, I used to see this kid in the hallways all the time. She's grown, mature, and become an excellent young lady. And she's forced now to come out here and advocate not only on behalf of herself, but on behalf of her family, on behalf of her community, right? Because of uh, the sort of xenophobia that's been whipped up and the ways in which it throws the community in peril. And that provided education even in that moment. It was a brief encounter. I kept thinking to myself, wow. If I hadn't been here, I would maybe it wouldn't have resonated quite in this way, right? But here I am seeing like the real, uh, you know, blood and bones sort of consequences for policy decisions that get made, right, in our community. And I wonder if we took the time to do what you're suggesting, which is to get out to make ourselves uncomfortable, to educate ourselves beyond what is offered on a course load. Um, if we could build a more empathetic, a more accommodating, a more understanding. Uh, sort of education system, but a society writ large, right? Because that's really what, to me, education is not just about the education system, mm-hmm. right? It's about um, the impact that it has and the resonance it has for every other institution. It's the fact that we touch everybody and everything because you spend so much time, whether you're a parent or whether you're a student, right, dealing with uh, education. Um, we got about five minutes left, and I know the time has gone pretty quickly, but I never like to end without allowing uh, folks to cast a vision for the future, uh, to practice, just to embody this notion of radical imagination. Mm-hmm. That things, we don't negate the way things are, but part of our charge is to dream uh, bigger dreams, to imagine a reality beyond this, right? So um, when you think about not just what you want to destroy, but what you want to build, mm-hmm. what do you, what's your radical imagination look like for um, all you for large, but uh, Southeast Asian youth in North Carolina and in Charlotte? Mm. That one's not on the paper. I know I didn't get that one to you in advance. No, no, I appreciate the question. Um, I think to get moved from the status quo, we do have to use imagination. And we talk about that a lot in movement, sort of visioning. And um, I think, you know, I, I can't answer that question just for Southeast Asian youth because I think um, – the liberation of um, so many of the Southeast Asian youth is tied to the Latinx youth, to the Mm -hmm. black youth. Mm -hmm. So when I think about um, what we can do together, when I think about um, no longer thinking about this is an issue that just impacts my community, but um, I'm not actually seeing the connections to other communities, I think that's what we've done. You know, that's why so many people come to Siak Village and they're like, why are there black youth here? (laughs) We're like, why would we go to the West Side and pick up refugee youth and not pick up the youth that like the communities that have been here struggling with under resources? We talk about under resourcing in these neighborhoods. Why would then we just go and not actually pay um, respect and recognize that these communities have been struggling way before us as refugees were put in this position? So I think we have to rethink a lot of this, you know, um, and we have to think about, um, for me, we always say this at SEAC that, you know, we want um, to build a village and we are a village. 
We're like a family of each other. And it doesn't matter where we come from, what we look like. We're one family together. And we do that chant often when we're on the streets, when we're in the, the space, so that we're really centering the collectivity and that we're one family and we're going to take care of each other. If it means that we all take a little bit less to fill someone else's bowl up so they can be part of this village, that's what we do. And if it means that we have to protect each other, knowing that we're seen differently on the front lines when we protest, that's what we do, you know? So this is what I um, and a lot of people at SIAC envision. And this is, I think for us, part of the internal challenge is how to be a nonprofit, move away from all the corporatizing, um, but how to relate to each other in the most, um, in the most collective way in the most heart-to-heart way, in the, in the way that we're not just showing up for each other, that we're down for each other hey. when things go down. So that's what our vision is and definitely what my vision is and kind of how I move about my own life um, and what I want my child, who's nine months now. Shout oh, out to Tinsang, Blue Sky. <laughs> I always forget to big, shout out Tinsang, but right. that's what I would want <laughs> for them also growing up and for all of our children. Beautiful. Couple minutes, Dr. Kalano. You know, I I don't want to simplify it too much, but I just would love to see a community where we all feel like we belong. Um, you know, creating the sense of belongingness is so important to each and every one of us um, that we are united because we're all on the same side. We all want equity, you know, in education, in, in our communities, um, on so many levels. And so I would just hope that Kat talks about her new baby. Um, and I have a 16 year old and Mm -hmm. a 10 year old. And, you know, as a parent, you want to think about, what kind of world are we creating for our children? And are we, are we going to leave this world better or make it worse for yeah. them? So I would just like to see us all wake up, mm-hmm. again, open ourselves up to discomfort, as Kat said, um, learn from one another, and help create a better world than what we are experiencing right now. That's it. That's perfect. And that's a perfect note to end it on. I wanna thank you all so much for taking the time. And I hope that this is not last time, but the first time, because I wanna be in that solidarity movement along with y'all and helping each other in whatever ways that we can. So this is uh, at least the first step in creating that world, Mm -hmm. right? So thank you so much for your time.